the Ephesian story, taken from Acts chapter 19 and 20. No one had ever seen anything like it in the history of their city. A huge bonfire lit up the night sky and showed no signs of dying down because more and more people kept coming and throwing their scrolls into the roaring flames. They were followers of the way, a new religion that was taking root in Ephesus. Hundreds of former pagans who just months before had been worshipping the goddess Artemis were now pledging their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Something had happened in Ephesus that convinced them that their former occult practices were not compatible with their newfound faith. They didn't need to try and control their lives through uh, sorcery and incantations written on scrolls, so they were surrendering it all to Jesus Christ and putting their trust in him. But it meant that all these magic scrolls needed to go. The crazy thing was, they were worth an absolute fortune. I mean, they could have sold them. But these Christ followers had come to a realization that there was a spiritual power that they needed to renounce and break free from. And so they made this bonfire. Someone estimated that what got destroyed that day amounted to 50,000 silver coins. That's about $10 million, all gone up in smoke as they gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven had invaded one of Satan's biggest strongholds in the ancient world. And how did it happen? Well, it was through the word of God and the spirit of God. It was word and spirit. But let's start at the beginning of this story, when the apostle Paul and some companions arrived in Ephesus. Ephesus. Some say the name means desirable. And there were certainly many desirable things that drew half a million people to live in that great city, the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Situated on the Aegean Sea, now in uh, modern-day Turkey, Ephesus was a major commercial seaport with people coming in from all over the world. It had an open-air theatre that could hold up to 50,000 people and a temple that was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. The temple was for the goddess Artemis, who the Romans called Diana. She was the goddess of hunting and wild animals. But in Ephesus, she'd also become identified with an Asian fertility goddess, and the Ephesians took great pride in their multi-breasted effigy of Artemis and the magnificent temple that housed her. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And of course, the cult surrounding Artemis with her temple prostitutes and the sellers of silver shrines and magic scrolls meant that Ephesus was famous for her sexual promiscuity and occult activity, which generated a thriving economy. So when a short Jewish man named Paul arrived in Ephesus one day, he would have largely gone unnoticed, unremarkable among the many visitors to this desirable city. Paul had actually been there a few months before. He was heading back to his home church in Antioch after his second missionary journey, and he stopped off in Ephesus with a married couple called Aquila and Priscilla. He'd met these believers in Corinth, and they soon became co-workers. And so when Paul went to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla went with him. The intention was to share the good news of Jesus and make disciples who would then form a new church, as Paul had done elsewhere. 
And he started by reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. And they asked him to stay longer. But Paul was just passing through on that occasion. And so he left Priscilla and Aquila there to continue the work with the promise that, God willing, he would return. And so he did, sometime around the beginning of 54 AD. And on his arrival back in Ephesus, Paul met some disciples. But what happened next is fascinating, because Paul asked them a question. First thing he asked them that's recorded for us, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? I mean, you know, what an interesting question. Why would he ask that? I'm not sure that's the first question that I would have asked them. I mean, I would have asked them uh, how they came to be Christians, maybe. And in fact, as it turned out, they didn't know what Paul was talking about because they weren't followers of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And so Paul told them about Jesus, who John had told people to believe in. And as they responded, he baptized them in the name of Jesus, and then he laid hands on each one of them to make sure that they did receive the Holy Spirit. And they did, because they all began speaking in tongues in this language of the Spirit and prophesying. There were about uh, 12 of them in all. But you know, Paul's question and his actions were very revealing, because it indicated, firstly, that it must be possible to be a believer and to not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Because otherwise his question wouldn't make sense. And secondly, it showed that for the Apostle Paul, being filled with the Spirit was absolutely foundational for the Christian life and for the life and witness of the church. And again, I would ask anyone watching this, as I've done before, have you received the Holy Spirit since believing? Maybe you're not sure. Well, I encourage you to talk to someone who knows about these things. And if you have been filled, then listen to Paul's words in a letter he wrote to the Ephesian church a few years later. And in his letter, Paul emphasized again the importance of this. He, he wrote in chapter 5, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, which literally translated means go on being filled with the Spirit. You know, how things had begun in Ephesus, he clearly expected to be continuing. And so, you know, we should all be asking the Lord to fill us continually. But why? Well, maybe there's a clue in the next chapter of his letter, in chapter 6, where he wrote to the Ephesians about the reality of spiritual warfare. You know, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we find that we have a spiritual enemy who we have to resist and stand against in the mighty power of Jesus. The believers in Ephesus found that out when they burned their scrolls because there was a backlash, as we'll see in a minute. But Paul mentions two weapons in his letter to the Ephesians. He says we have uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he tells them to also pray in the Spirit. So it's Word and spirit right we need to be continually filled with the holy spirit right not just so we can stand firm against the enemy's schemes but so we can be empowered to advance into enemy territory because this world is in is enemy occupied territory where multitudes are being held captive by satan as they were in ephesus and the way that we'll see people set free is through spirit empowered preaching of the word and a demonstration of the spirit's power as we pray for God to move in signs and wonders. And that's exactly what Paul did in Ephesus. It was word and spirit. 
because after his encounter with the twelve disciples, Paul went to the synagogue to continue teaching and persuading the Jews about the kingdom of God. In fact, he did that for about three months. But some refused to listen and spoke evil of Paul and his disciples. And so Paul left the synagogue with the disciples he'd made and started teaching daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, reasoning with all who came. But at the same time, the preaching of the word was accompanied by demonstrations of the Spirit's power, as God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. In fact, there were even instances of handkerchiefs that he kind of maybe wiped his brow with being taken to the sick and they were healed of diseases and delivered from evil spirits. It really was word and spirit hand in hand. And this went on for about two years. And Luke, who's telling us this story, says that as a result, all the residents in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. I mean, what an amazing statement. People who were coming into Ephesus for trade, religion and pleasure had no doubt heard about Paul and this new religion. And so they stopped to hear his teaching. Maybe some were healed and they went back to their cities with the, with the good news. Not only that, but evangelists went out from the Ephesian church to the surrounding region. And so that's how churches got started all over that area, without Paul even visiting their cities. Cities like Colossae and uh, Laodicea, Smyrna, Sardis. In fact, it's probably all seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of heaven didn't just invade the city of Ephesus. It advanced throughout Asia Minor. But it wasn't without some opposition. Luke tells us of a rather amusing incident when some Jewish exorcists tried to tap into the power they saw associated with the name of Jesus. And they invoked his name as they tried to cast a demon out of a man, but with disastrous consequences. Because the demon answered them. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the demon-possessed man jumped on the seven exorcists and overpowered them, sending them packing. Well, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. I mean, think about that. That's half a million people. And fear fell on them as they held the name of Jesus in high regard. But the effect it had on the new believers was it caused them to get serious about their faith. They became very aware of the principalities and powers of darkness that were at work. And that's what caused them to burn all the magic scrolls they'd hung on to. And so they made this great bonfire. But this had the effect of stirring things up in the spiritual realm. Because shortly afterwards, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made his business from making silver shrines of Artemis, he gathered together other craftsmen who were no doubt going out of business as all over the city and region people were turning away from their goddess and turning to Jesus Christ. And so Demetrius got them all riled up shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they went out onto the streets and they found two of Paul's companions and they dragged them into their great open-air theatre where a big crowd gathered. And for two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Two hours! But then thankfully the city clerk managed to quieten them down and persuaded them that if Artemis really was great, she was under no threat. And that the men that they had seized had done nothing wrong. And if they had a complaint, 
they should go through the proper channels because otherwise they were the ones who would end up being charged that night for civil disorder. And so the crowd thankfully dispersed. Law and order prevailed and the tragedy was averted for the church. You know, I'm sure there must have been many people praying as they heard the cries coming from the theatre for two whole hours as this great mob all shouted in unison. Surely this incident demonstrates to us the reality of the spiritual battle that the church is engaged in and that we should expect opposition wherever the gospel is advancing. But it also demonstrates the impact that the gospel and the church can make even in a mighty city like Ephesus as well as the regions beyond. There's one final part to this story I want to finish with. Because the schemes of the enemy are not always so obvious as persecution. You know, they can often be very subtle and take the form of false teaching, infiltrating the church to kind of throw it off track. And that's why God gives us spiritual overseers, those who guard against these uh, demonic schemes to protect the church from heresy. In the New Testament, they're called elders. Paul appointed them wherever he started a new church and later told others like Titus to do the same. They didn't appoint a sole pastor, they appointed teams of elders who were the pastors or shepherds of the church. And surely there's wisdom in having a team, even if the team needs someone to lead it, especially if we take spiritual warfare seriously. So Paul appointed elders in Ephesus. We're not given any details about it, but when the time came for Paul to leave the region, he stopped at Miletus, about 45 miles along the coast from Ephesus, and he called for the Ephesian elders to meet him there. And that's where they bade him a very tearful and loving farewell. But first Paul wanted to remind the elders of how he'd laboured among them day and night for three years, as he taught them about Jesus and his kingdom how he didn't shrink back in spite of opposition. And now that he was leaving, he was charging them to do as he had done, to care for the church that was so precious to God, who had purchased her with his own blood. He called them to watch over their own lives, as well as the flock in which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. Because he said, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, who will not spare the flock. And he was talking there about false teachers who would arise, even from their own number, who would twist sound doctrine and draw Christ's followers away. You are the shepherds of the flock, he was saying. He wasn't saying that they had to do it all, because we know that there were gifted men and women, co-workers of Paul, who also had leadership roles and who taught others, people like Priscilla and Aquila, who are intriguingly referred to in that order, when it came to teaching. And next time we'll look at how the church is a gifted body of people in which everyone has a part to play. We'll look at that in the Corinthian story. But elders are clearly appointed by God for the good of the church and have an important part to play in protecting us from the spiritual forces of darkness. They are like uh, fathers in the church family who've been given spiritual authority to care for and feed and protect the flock. Not to lord it over people, but to serve, like Paul, like Jesus, willing to lay down their lives for the sheep. 
Sadly, some of the things that Paul warned them about did seem to come to pass later on in their story. And we see it unfolding in Paul's letter to Timothy, who was like a spiritual son to Paul and who he later sent to Ephesus as his apostolic delegate to represent him to the elders and the church. It seems that they'd already begun to experience the influence of false teachers. Perhaps if the pastors had been more alert, more vigilant, it wouldn't have happened. But it does highlight you know, the reality of the spiritual battle we're engaged in and why we need both word and spirit. It also highlights the need for us to stay close to Jesus. You know, how easy it is to be engaged in the work of the kingdom that we neglect our relationship with the king. And that was the last word in the Ephesian story. We find it in the second chapter of Revelation, where the risen Lord Jesus instructed the apostle John to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the first was the church in Ephesus, who now many years later seem to be doing a little better in resisting the false teachers and are commended for their endurance and hard work. And yet Jesus says this to them. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He had been their first love. Everything else they threw on the bonfire. But that passion that they once had for him had waned. And now Jesus was calling them to return to their first love. You know, how easy it is to be drawn away by all that this world finds desirable when Jesus should be our chief and only desire, our first love. God bless you as you consider these things today. Here are some questions that you can use for discussion in your small group. Firstly, did anything in particular stand out to you in this story? So what was it and why? Secondly, do you find that you lean more towards the word or the spirit? And why should they never be set over against each other? Thirdly, are you aware of spiritual warfare and in what ways? And finally, are there things in your own life that need to be thrown on the bonfire as you seek to make Jesus your first love?